Chapter creator David Brown recently interviewed David Burke, the Vice President of Programs and Field Operations for Team Rubicon. Team Rubicon puts the skills and experience of veteran volunteers to work, assisting first responders and deploying emergency response teams. Listen on to learn more about this amazing organization, how they got their start, and why this mission matters on this episode of the Security Clearance Podcast. Tell me about the origin of Team Rubicon. Where does this thing come from? So Team Rubicon was founded in 2010 after the earthquake in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Jake Wood and William McNulty are the two co-founders. After the earthquake, they reached out to several different aid organizations to see if there was a way they could plug in, recognizing that chaos and destruction that Port-au-Prince saw was not too dissimilar from what they had seen in Iraq and Afghanistan. The broad base aid organizations, the, the big names that everybody knows of, told Jake and Will both, you know, thanks, get signed up, and maybe next time you can help. Seeing the scope and scale of that, they knew that they had an opportunity to serve. So they went down on their own and formed a team of about eight and began working in areas that they found the greatest need around Port-au-Prince and included some outline areas, some just generally unserved or otherwise considered unsafe areas to helping manage the triage and treatment at the Port-au-Prince's main hospital and the emergency room. Kind of a grab bag of different tasks where they thought they could have the most impact and in just a couple of short weeks proved the premise that military veterans could deliver excellent aid in the aftermath of a disaster, utilizing the same skills and experiences that they had from their time in the military. That was kind of the founding story. They continued on in different ways, different groups of folks, for about six weeks after Port-au-Prince and continued serving after that. The organization kind of grew from there. And what recent operations has Team Rubicon participated in? I know you've been involved in many different ones. We've done 33 operations in 2017, and those have all been domestic operations, responses to floods, fires, tornadoes, general severe weather. Most recently, we've had teams in Mississippi and Tennessee in North Central Washington. We did some work as kind of a mitigation operation to help clear a 911 dispatch tower of debris that otherwise made it at fire risk and that uh, handles the dispatch for most of northern Washington without that tower. The 911 system would be severely degraded. The most recent severe weather in Blount County, Tennessee, and a tornado in Holmes and Montgomery counties down in Mississippi. So how do you deploy to areas and interact with local response groups? We've got a, a network of about 47,000 volunteers across the country, and they're grouped into the 10 FEMA regions. So we follow the FEMA regional structure to kind of group our volunteers and assess our capacity to respond. And within those, we have volunteer leaders at every level. So there's volunteer leaders in cities and states and then at the regional level. So as soon as an event is identified and assessed that there is a need that Team Rubicon can support, 
will deploy local leadership to interface directly with either the volunteer organizations active in disaster or the local jurisdictional authority that's overseeing and coordinating response efforts. More often than not, that's the city, county, emergency manager, which may be the police chief or fire chief, and work directly through that jurisdictional authority to offer the services we're capable of that can augment their efforts, which may just be information collection and damage assessment, and work with them for when the area is open to offer homeowners direct support. And direct support to homeowners can range from helping repair a structure so that so it remains habitable, so someone's not ending up in a shelter, to helping a homeowner uh, remove the remnants of a structure that's been completely demolished to the curb to save them that demolition cost from their from their required funding to rebuild. How has the veteran community responded to this opportunity, and what makes veterans ideally suited for what you do? So I think the veteran community responded pretty well to Team Rubicon. We have a really consistent average of 200 new volunteers per week, and of that 200, 75% tend to be military veterans, and this is built off of uh, social networks and word of mouth. We haven't done... We've done very little targeted recruiting to maintain that number, and it's been consistent for about five years now. The reason uh, I think veterans are uniquely suited to serve after disasters or in preparation or long-term recovery from disasters is every veteran of the current conflicts, the post-9-11 veteran, has volunteered to serve. You know, they raise their right hand completely voluntarily. We've been a, a, a whole volunteer force for quite a long time now, and that volunteerism, that sense of service, doesn't disappear after you take the uniform law. What's even more unique than a strong sense of service and volunteerism is the skills and experiences military veterans gain, the opportunity to lead folks at a very early age, the challenge of leadership, being comfortable with that, the exposure to resource-constrained chaotic environments, it's hard to find in any other pool of individuals. Military veterans bring those experiences, skills, and exposures to the disaster zone and a little more comfortable, have a strong bias for action, see something wrong, make it better, and that kind of uniquely suits military veterans to the disaster space. Tell me about the volunteer process. What particular veteran skill set do you look for in volunteers? I think there's just a broad general skill set, kind of some of the stuff I just talked about, but we see that bias for action, exposure to lost environments, natural and earned leadership abilities that the military provides are all huge assets in the post-disaster environment and in managing large numbers of people to respond to the aftermath of disasters. We'll frequently see thousands of community volunteers come out in the aftermath of a disaster to help their neighbors, providing military veterans, young and old, a team of community-based volunteers to lead with a task and a clear purpose is a huge benefit to everyone. It keeps the focus kind of leverages that outpouring of goodwill that communities see after a disaster in the most meaningful way, and it gives military veterans an opportunity to exercise leadership skills. But many military veterans come home after leading 5 or 10 or 25 or 1,000 other military members to roles that are significantly smaller in scope, even down to individual contributor. So an opportunity to exercise that leadership is is usually found pretty energizing. But there are specific skill sets that the military trains for beyond kind of a general leadership and for action that, that makes uh, volunteer veterans super valuable. If you think about military 
um, jobs, MLSs, you can find every job required to run a small or medium city. So you can find folks that know water purification. You can find engineers that know building, which means they know how to deconstruct a building that's been significantly damaged. You can find your logisticians or logistics officer from five years for the Marine Corps that can help coordinate response efforts, which in a disaster environment is it's just as critical to have what you need when you need it as it is to, to not have stuff that's there too early or in too high a volume. So detailed logistics planning is really important. So those are all kind of a handful of skill sets that come in particularly handy. And a step beyond that, having, you know, a force that's been engaged in counterinsurgency and knows how to how to communicate with local populations and maintain some cultural sensitivity. As much as we don't always think about it, the 50 United States or 50 very different states and the ability to work with populations across the whole country is is uh, important too. Tell me about the future of your organizations or what are your ambitions in terms of capability and growth? As I said, we've grown at about 200 volunteers per week and we're engaging 47,000 folks in kind of the way that fits them. Uh, part of driving a volunteer organization is remembering that everything we do is based on volunteers' time and availability. Most of our volunteers have full-time jobs, and a lot of them have families and are in school. So understanding where we are at 47,000 and the capacity we have, we still recognize that there are hundreds of disasters that affect the United States every year and countless humanitarian needs around the world that are unmet every year. So as we look to grow the organization domestically, we're going to focus on the highest population cities across the country to help build centers of gravity that we can work to have volunteers respond from and reach the more rural or outlying areas. But we're also looking at targeted capabilities development to work more deliberately in the humanitarian space uh, overseas. We currently have a, an austere medical capability. We'll deploy medical providers in the aftermath of uh, rapid onset disasters where a surge medical capacity is needed to, to either treat trauma or help get a health system back in place. We'll look to grow that capability to be more flexible to needs beyond the rapid onset disaster or complex emergencies and crises that would include uh, internal displaced people or mass migrations. may also include other complex environments that we don't kind of This is extraordinary. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Security Clearance Podcast. Please visit news.clearancejob.com for more security clearance news, insights, and information. Have a great day.